The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I am Reagan Kelly, and I am joined by my very cool co-hosts. Laura Nash. And Shane Kelly. And this week is a bit of a special sort of topic episode for us. So our normal format is book club style. We pick a video game, usually a short game, 10 hours or less is our usual limit. And we uh, try to, we all play it and we talk about it in some depth. Uh, This is not going to be that. Week before last, we did our game of the year of 2019, and uh, that uh, raised a lot of interesting, you know, that's the end of a decade. It raised a lot of interesting conversations, especially on our Discord, which is where we all chat about the show and talk about what we're playing. And by the way, of course, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, you can join us there and have that conversation with us too. But uh, we started talking about what the 20. Tens, or I've heard people start calling the decade the 20-teens, which I actually really like, so I'm going to go with that. What did the 20-teens mean for them in video games? Um, or what was the game of the 20-teens? What was the, you know, what, and that's all tricky to talk about. I, I, I was thinking about, you know, is there a game of the decade? No, that's impossible. There's just simply no way to do that. Even a game of the year is is a bit of a stretch. But we did start having a conversation where we got into talking about Indie games specifically, which are a lot of what we cover, and uh, what the sort of arc of indie games has been across the decade. And it was a really interesting talk, and I thought we wanted to kind of bring that out into the podcast and talk about a decade worth of indie games and what that indie game scene has looked like since 2010. Yeah, we are not professional video game curators. We are not game journalists who've had a million different uh, Steam codes in our library. We are just very interested, though, in what the overall arcs of the last 10 years, because it's kind of, for me personally, it's me gaming as an adult and really gaming in general, because I was not allowed video games as a child. Uh, Joke's on you, parents. Uh, (laughs) But to me, really, I I think... Indie games and kind of small independent games um, have gotten a lot more media coverage this decade. And it's been really interesting to look back and think how much stuff we took for granted and thought were just the way things were. Uh, Once you get past the big AAA titles, there's a lot of little arcs and a lot of little engines that could, and some of them could not, unfortunately. There's There's some tragedy in the 20 teens. Yeah, it's it's really neat though. Um, it's it, it's a decade that coincided very much with my, you know, <clears throat> becoming really engaged with video games. Like I, I obviously played a lot of games as a kid. It was something that I spent a lot of time on. Then I sort of fell away from it a little bit, but I sort of came back to games pretty seriously during the beginning of or a little bit before the 2010s. And um, it's just it was a you know, looking back over a whole decade of it, it's really quite interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I always played a lot of games, but I wasn't really as much, you know, a, a dedicated gamer uh, until this kind of decade. So, you know, we we, we had some consoles and things like that. But um, 
Reagan and I, especially, you know, you and I coming into the this decade, we're more into like tech generally than games. You know, That's true. And, you know, we're actually more into podcasting than games, which is, <laughs> you know, we did a lot of podcasting back then. Um, and we were also really into Apple stuff just in general. Like we were kind of design nerds and liked the arts and stuff like that. And that's, you know, uh, so, so all of that kind of, um, set the stage for me coming into the 2010s because in 2009, uh, I thought the biggest thing in games ever had happened, which was the creation of the app store. And I rightly understood that it would change everything for games, but I had no idea at the time, uh, what it was going to do because I knew that opening the floodgates to anyone who could code or make, you know, uh, who, who could who could create uh, something like this, uh, to be able to put software right onto, you know, these incredible devices that were, you know, people were realizing are going to be everywhere. You know, that's it. That's that's the future of games. That's what I thought coming into 2010. Um, and we had been used to never having any games because we were all on the Mac, but also 2010 is the year that steam came to the Mac. So this was the, the start of this decade felt like the dawning of a new age of games to me. Yeah. I want to back up a little bit before the beginning of the decade and sort of set the stage for where things were. I, you know, obviously Shane mentioned that the app store happened, uh, like I think it was 2008 mm-hmm. and, um, that was a very big deal, but there that's part of a big pattern that was happening right at the end of the previous decade where, you know, these digital, digital distribution and digital marketplaces were opening up and making it possible for games to be available in more places more easily and distributed by more people. You know, there's always been indie games. There's always been, you know, bedroom coders. You go back to the early days of computing and most games were created by, you know, one person probably working on their own, usually not in a professional uh, work for higher capacity, but more like as as a project that then they would uh, sell either themselves or very more often just uh, as a boxed product through a publisher. But a lot of those games were were in a way what you'd consider an indie game uh, with a publisher. Uh, But that sort of fell away the more complex games got. Uh, it, it felt like in the early days of the, or sorry, in the, in the like later days of the 2000s that suddenly those that was returning. There were people out there who were able to, you know, build games mostly on their own, which felt like a surprise at the time and distribute them through these things that were starting to become available. So just at the end of the decade, the App Store, obviously big one, Steam was beginning to allow uh, third-party games on their platform, um, and even consoles had a little little crack in yeah, the door Yeah, Xbox there. Live Arcade was really big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing to me that I remember being a huge deal since I was uh, in a, the casual game industry at the time was because games were suddenly on phones, everyone had access to games and everyone was curious about games. So it kind of broke down this like gamer label. I honestly still don't call myself a gamer. And until I'd been recording this podcast for four years and someone called me that, I was like, who, who, who is a gamer? Um, but the idea that games being on your phone and was so accessible made this like gaming is something that everyone does. 
um, yeah, it really normalized it. Started to become it. a narrative. It, yeah. it really normalized it, and I think also like you start getting a little bit more prestige. I mean, uh, MoMA put a bunch of games, I think fourteen, into their library in twenty twelve. Um, there were these kind of like little baby steps towards like games might be important, and I think this proliferation, this kind of accessibility, you don't have to go into a store to get a game. You can just impulse buy really started to change that. So that's kind of, to me, what the early decade was like, I can get games easily and games don't necessarily have that barrier to entry they once did. I don't have to download an emulator and put a ROM on it or go out and buy a piece of hardware. I already have the hardware. The games work on what I have. Yeah. And you don't even have to visit a store. It's it's just no. there. Um, you know, when, I, when the iPhone first started uh, making software available, I remember thinking like, are they going to have... Am I going to go into an Apple store and buy a piece of software in a box and install it on my phone through iTunes? I literally thought I was going to be doing that before they announced how the App Store was going to work. And that's not how things work. <laughs> the Internet and Steam, you know, going into 2010, we're already we're we're obviously very much a thing like, you know, that the there was no walled garden around you know, who could install what on a PC, right? Or yeah, we knew how to go get online and download yeah. software from the internet. And, you know, a lot of it was games. It was out there. Uh, but what the kind of the rise of the app store showed is like, okay, if you have this really compelling hardware and you put it together with an easy, easy way to get software onto it from anyone and just like make the make the barrier between the developer and the customer really low, people are going to be very willing to try new things. And so the number of people playing games and all that stuff just explodes. But then we get into 2010 and already the cracks are kind of starting to show there. Like mm -hmm. the, the, the app store itself has a, I guess a few good years, right? The 2010 is when we have the iPads release and there's this explosion of creativity on there. But there's a lot of, um, you know, that rises that that lower of that lowering of that barrier. Uh, I remember there, there being like a few years where like, oh, somebody made a fart app. That's funny. But then like a, a couple of years go by and there's like 50 fart apps and you have to scroll past them to find the games you want to play. You know, like that, that becomes the problem that you face. And I don't think anyone ex expected that. Yeah. Do you guys remember what sorts of games you were playing around the beginning of the decade around 2010? I do. Um, so 2010 was the year that like Steam for Mac came out. And um, to me, the stuff I was trying to play on my computer, a lot of that was stuff that was kind of hard to get, like uh, running on a Mac. stuff. Like Limbo, Super Meat Boy and VVVVV all came out that year. So there was a lot of like these different reimaginings of the platformer. A lot of the a lot of this indie explosion was like people bringing new creativity to this like very core gamer console associated genre of the like side scroller platformer. Uh, and and so there was a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah, I was playing a ton on Xbox Live Arcade because I lived in Seattle. Guess what? Microsoft uh, company store subsidized by purchases. So hmm. I was playing a ton of indie games on that. Like, you know, I was still playing a lot of Castle Crashers and Braid, like things that were featured in indie game, the movie, um, which came out a little after, but was covering that time period. Like generally I was playing emulator games, games for work and Xbox Live Arcade. I didn't even know about Steam for several years. 
I did not. Yeah, I definitely wasn't on Steam at that point yet. I didn't have anything that would play any game. Like Steam for Mac came out in 2010, but um, and I think I downloaded it and played around with it. But my Mac was very low end at that point. I, I think that at the time I was mostly playing games on the PS3. Um, you know, I had a PS3 that I was very excited to get when the PS3 was pretty new. It was very expensive, um, but uh, I I bought it and. Uh, Along with my my long suffering then uh, then girlfriend who for some reason decided to split a PS3 with me I, like what a what a bam- that seems like a what a interesting right? move yeah no I was like oh but you know we'll be able to watch Blu-rays together <laughs> you know how these things go I I I ended I ended up moving to New York in 20, 2009. I think I bought her out of her half of the PS3 so I could take it with me. And I, uh, I was playing a lot of games on that. So, you know, we're talking about, I, I think around that time I would have been playing like Portal 2, Mo- you know, not really indie stuff. You know, the, I can't think of any indie games that I would have been playing around the actual turn of the decade. I think that happened for me a little bit later. Yeah, a lot, a lot of phone games. I'm looking at my purchase history. Um, Tap Tap Revenge 3 is not an indie game at all. But things like Dark Nebula was coming out. Like there was a lot of little, you know, lost games. And uh, lest we forget, Plants vs. Zombie came out, I think, in 2010. So again, not super indie, but wasn't a huge thing yet. Yeah, that's a really good point. I did have an iPhone by uh, at some point in 2010. I'm pretty sure a little before that. And uh, I think my first iPhone was the 3GS, and I played a fair number of games on it. I think the the game I most remember playing on my iPhone, my iPhone 3GS, my first iPhone, was uh, probably uh, Spider, The Secret of Bryce Manor, which I remember just being absolutely in love with. Yeah, that was a terrific game. I I, I think the game I remember on my phone the most from that year was The Incident. Who made that? I forget. That was, I don't know. The Incident was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. But we could all get games without really knowing anything about them, yeah, which was pretty cool. It was, it, and I was just starting to be aware of, like, really starting to try to follow games. At, at before that point, I think my awareness of games was mostly through blogs. Like, I think at that at, around this time in my life, I was, you know, mostly engaging with online media by doing things like reading Boing Boing, and the games that I was playing would be things like Boing Boing wrote an article about like, hey, did you know that this game Portal exists and it's good? Uh, and I'd be like, huh, that sounds interesting. I wonder if I can play that on my PlayStation 3. Oh, turns out I can. Okay, cool. That's pretty much how things went for me back in, in around that time period. Um, and so it, around 2010 was when I was starting to get more engaged. I was reading Touch Arcade every day. I was like trying to find new games. And the idea of like indie games as a thing was also starting to bubble up in at least my consciousness. I know that that phrase has been around longer than that. Um, and obviously, like, it was definitely in the public mind by the time Indie Game, the movie, came out. You know, think about the phrase Indie Games. That's, it's essentially trying to play on the idea of, like, Indie Movies. Indie Movies was a concept I was very familiar with by this point, right? Like, that was, uh, and so the idea of Indie Games uh, sort of clicked. It was like, okay, this is, these are games that that are made in the same way as Indie Movies and mean some of the same things that Indie Movies meant to me in the twenty. 20- uh, in the 2000s. So like, you know, made by a small team, made on a small budget, and usually more willing to be artistically adventurous because of their ability to take risks that big budget stuff couldn't. That's what what like indie game says or said at the time. I think it still sort of does. But like, I think that was more of a statement back then. Yeah, to me, 
the difference is indie game then kind of was like we are really on our own and here it is we are on our own and then we found a publisher <laughs> it feels mm-hmm. more like an indie game like you don't have to necessarily <laughs> do all of the like every indie like Nintendo just served me an ad on Instagram saying best indies of the year and Ori and the Blind Forest was on it. And I was like, is that an indie? It's got a huge team behind it. Like indie doesn't like it's almost become um, a meaningless term in some way, but it used to mean small. Indies is more about budget than about like structure now in a way. It's funny. But I don't even know if it means that anymore. I, I feel like it used to mean like small that's true. And now like, it means something else. Yeah, I don't. It's it's well. We'll talk about this when we get to the end of the decade and like figure out what indie still means, if anything. But yeah, I I think about it in terms of like specifically like okay. I think a really important example here is like Minecraft. Right, Minecraft is an indie game. Um, it was when it first came out. This was a mm-hmm. bedroom coder project by who? Uh, I thought the game dropped out of space, right? But no, it's a. I can't snark on early 2010s notch right like he he went down a dark path but we got to look at him as a as a really interesting example <laughs> so many people in games went down a dark path so in many 2010s. Yeah. The 2010s that's the story of the 2010s a the, dark path there's a lot of milkshake ducks in 2010s <laughs> yeah but so like minecraft is a global phenomenon the likes of which most of us have never seen before and will never see again in our lives it is it is a thing that went from a weird java applet to one of the biggest multimedia brands in the world. And uh, 2010 was when this game went to alpha. So it wasn't even out exactly yet at this point, although it it had become a thing that you could buy and it was starting to resemble what it would later become. Um, And it was about as indie as you get. This was something that, like, it was not on Steam. You had to go to Notch's website and buy this game for, I think it was $15, and then download a Java jar file uh, to your computer and run it. Like it was, it was as indie as it gets. And like, I mean, maybe we check in on Minecraft a little bit as we go through the rest of the decade because holy crap, uh, the that decade was kind to Minecraft and its uh, uh, and its developer who shall remain nameless. I guess. Yeah, Minecraft hit. Um, at, at it wasn't even I hard to say it was at the perfect time because I mean it was such a perfect idea. Um, it was interesting enough that it was enthralling for kids and and you know really people of all ages, but it, especially for kids. And it was innocuous enough that no parent really objected to it. But it was like expansive in, and uh, complex enough to just like. Uh, really be that um, kind of perpetual game that we were talking about, the forever game that was Mm -hmm. kind of starting to rise here for a certain generation of gamer. And I really loved it. I played a hell of a lot of it. Yeah, me too. I I remember building great structures in Minecraft with you as a great way to hang out. It was a a nice cross-country way to to hang out and chill and bash blocks together yeah. and you know it, it was a beautiful I mean, it thing still is i would still love to return to uh our castle one day but yeah i mean i think it's so there, it's hard to knock minecraft as a uh as an idea because it's one of the most brilliant games of all time uh you know but like you said the the 2010s are going to reveal kind of some social issues in the gaming community as that community i guess kind of begins to really 
assemble uh, itself around like uh, online communities because you know before that it was it was not as as well defined you know and people were definitely weren't looking at you know maybe maybe this is related to the idea of the indie game becoming this artistic movement you know which happens in the 2010s like in any yeah. artistic movement people people really do start to look and say like okay well if we are taking a look at this genre artistically what is it actually saying well you're talking about this kind of personal story and the artistic message like games became part of this auteur theory where it was a really you suddenly knew the names of individuals behind game titles and sure that was happening to some extent with um, a lot of the early designers but everyone knew them I, I think before that I literally only knew who like will Wright and Kojima were right like but now eh, like the media was picking up like, oh, this game was a hit and it was made by these two people or this one person. Like, this is Genova Chen. Like, people got pedestalized and some of them were able to stay on there and some of them fell off very quickly <laughs> because uh, once you start taking like a single person, then suddenly like, oh, they're not just the game they made. They're an individual and people are flawed and some people are more flawed than others. So it's yep. kind of like this combo of this like, Oh, this person is an artist. They're a genius. They're a businessman. Oh, are they a horrible person? We don't know. We never asked. Um, it, it's all those things together. And that's kind of like you can't have one without the other. Like you can't have the rise of these like giant uh, success stories on a few people without kind of, you know, having them fall into the weight of that fame in some way. At least like – the difference between this and what happened, it, it happens every time. Like, it happened in Victorian literature. It happened in movies. It's just like it happened a lot faster in video games. It used to take 20 years or 70 years for people to kind of get called out. And now it takes two, three. Yeah. <laughs> just so much faster now. Sorry, that was my, like, auteur theory lecture. Apologies to everybody. I'll take my... uh Room glasses off now. No, it's that's that's absolutely like an important component of this, and it also kind of dovetails with like the the. I mean, I, I don't want to be too much of a downer, but like some of the incredibly terrible shit that happened in the video game culture during <laughs> the, the darkness. Uh, you know, we talk about like uh, Artur theory. Uh, you know, there there were, were a lot of people who are these uh, these Artours. One of them was Zoe Quinn. Uh, mm -hmm. creating, you know, artwork, incredibly personal uh, game art, totally on her own. A person who uh, probably if she had been making that same stuff a decade prior, no one would have known who she was and no one would have played her stuff. Um, but, you know, Depression Quest got some press. And then we, I mean, I'm not going to I, I wouldn't even be able to give you a proper timeline of the Gamergate bullshit but like that's that's where we got to in terms of gaming well, culture uh so depression quest came out in 2013 which is the same year that anita sarkeesian started the uh tropes versus women in games series so i think that 2013 is specifically the flashpoint here for gamergate and so around that time that's you know you've got the release of both the x the you know the what is it sixth gen consoles xbox one ps4 mm -hmm. um i mean this is this is people you know it sounds pretty recent for me to say like 2013 but video games still had this very weird place in the culture then like if you think about it, it seems weird now to look back at a time where like 
you know, the president of the United States is saying, like, let's study violence in video games and see if that leads to school shootings and stuff like that. There was a lot of like discussion around like, what is the effect of games on our culture? Um, you know, still going on in that, in that time. And, um, so when Zoe Quinn created this game, um, depression quest, um, you know, it gets covered because it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic, right? Yeah. People are looking for that, like games as art angle too. So we were still, we were still arguing with, I I don't know at this point whether, uh, Ebert was dead, but I'm just going to say he was and that we were still arguing with his ghost about this, but our Marvel movies art. That's the quest question now. Yeah, we've moved on past our games art, and now we're talking about our <laughs> our movies. Even our movies, our movies art is art. Art. Is, our TVs chose just long, long, long movies. Anyway. <laughs> yes, all all of the answers to all of these questions are yes. Let's move on. But like, yeah, we we started seeing uh, games culture uh, being a microcosm and unfortunately a sort of a, a preview of culture at large. Um, you know, previously, games culture was at best a footnote and at worst a joke. Uh, games culture was like letters printed in the back of a magazine, right? But like now, it, starting in the around 2012 with things like Twitch coming out, Twitch came out in like the beginning of 2012. And obviously, YouTube had already been very big, but video game content on YouTube was starting to just absolutely drive the conversation around video games. The culture of like, what does it mean to be interested in games was taking a turn. And it's like, it's not so much that this stuff wasn't there. It's that there's, there's a different way of communicating about games now. And it meant that like, we were seeing these aspects of game culture that we hadn't previously seen, or at least I hadn't previously seen. And I mean, all that, positivity we had at the beginning about all of this accessibility and new people playing games and like you know the Wii had been out for a little bit like the phone all of these things of these easy casual games or accessible games like and then the gatekeeping happened yeah yeah, uh, there's definitely there was definitely like a uh, a feeling in that early those early days of the 2010s like that that things like phone games and Wii games were uh, were some people felt these are the future, and other people felt these are the future, and were f- fucking pissed about it because I like my existing style of playing games, and had this. Uh, and you know, also it's easy to if you think back to the decade before that, like I, I don't want to like, I don't want to totally minimize the the fact that like. If you were a video game playing person, like a game fan, I don't love the word gamer, here we go, but if you were if you were a gamer in the 2000s, it, everything about the way that games were moving might have felt to some people like they like they're coming for my games, right? Like there's there's, you know, there people saying that these these games that you play I have are a kind gonna... of a counterpoint though. Mm-hmm. Um fuck those guys. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great counterpoint. Look, I'm Excellent. totally with you. I am totally with you. I don't know. It, it, it was it, we were set up for a for a bad time, and and it would have been a really bad time if if not a shining light came forth in April 2014. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would have been like, a terrible ah. time if if it weren't for the 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 salvation of games. April 15th, 2014. The illustrious founding of the Short Game Podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A banner for good. 
<sighs> Truly. Can I talk a little bit about where that I mean, I've talked before this show, like where the where the the show came from, but can I talk like very briefly about like why I started the show around 2014? Does that matter? Uh, we don't know what you want to say specifically here, so you tell us if it I mean, matters. there's not much to say, really. It's just that 2014 was a time where, like, I finally had a a PC and a Steam account, right? And it was, it was after I got a PC and a Steam account that I realized, oh, hey, there are games out there that I want to play so many more games that I want that I want to play than I'll ever be able to play even then it seems the 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 backlog on my steam account would be cute by today's comparison right like but at the time it seemed like this unbelievable uh you know uh, pile of riches right and I uh there was there was just so much to talk about and we were we were already a few years into that sort of indie game boom right and so I had, you know, I was going through and playing all of those games that had come out since 2010, and I was just very excited to talk about them. Uh, and I was standing around the Apple store with Nate, and we were just shooting the shit about them and uh, really wanted to talk about them and do something with that and uh, roped in Shane and very shortly afterwards roped in Laura. And uh, mm-hmm. we all Well, I kind of bullied my way on there partially because of all the video culture garbage. I was like, I like these guys. I think there needs to be a lady voice on this podcast. I will sneak in and then make myself a space. And you guys were like, yes, please. Can I just say so, such a relief? Like, thank God for you, Laura. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's really Your why mind I was- games worked. I did, but I was basically like, hi, guys. I am, I am, you would like me on your podcast. You're like, yes, I would. Like, <laughs> yes. <great. laughs> yeah. I, I'd say like, I remember, I remember some of the like, hmm, it was, uh, it was very early in the podcast. Like the, the, the bullshit surrounding Gamergate started in 2013. So like yeah. very shortly you before. You guys were so careful. You guys were like, hi, Laura, you don't have to, but if you'd like to say something, and I was like, I don't want to talk about it. You're like, okay, cool. Great. Yeah. Like I didn't, <laughs> you guys were wonderful. At that point, I really didn't know how to talk about this stuff. Like I, I particularly, yeah. you know, in quote unquote public, right? Like I, I, when Gamergate started, it was so confusing. I mean, this is weird to say now, but like, I didn't understand what the controversy was. Every time I tried to read into it, it just seemed impossibly dumb. Like, to the point where I, like, I couldn't understand what was going on. Like, I was like, wait, why are people upset? And, you know, you had people on one side saying, oh, it's it's because of – and, you like, those people seemed almost immediately dismissible because they seemed like assholes. But also – It's about ethics in games journalism. Right? Like – It was very easy to immediately dismiss those people as assholes. And that was a correct choice. Thank you very much. But also, like, it was a very confusing time. Like, I couldn't figure out why this was happening. Like, I I think with time, I've been able to, like, kind of get a little bit more of a handle on, like, what was happening in the culture. Like, why did this happen? Why are all these people so so incredibly set on this incredibly stupid idea? Um, Yeah, it – and that was just the beginning of, like – Maybe baffled at the entire, like, basically, it took me a long time to get my head around, like, uh, Republicans and the right wing and the alt-right and Gamergate. I just, I thought I understood, like, people before this. And 2013, 14, 15 was a time when I was really realizing that like I had a really I had a really small 
view, right? I didn't understand what was going on under the surface uh, of of sort of American culture and world culture generally at the time. Like the 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 rise of Gamergate, the rise of the alt right caught me completely by surprise. Like my 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 politics today and my understanding of things today is so different than it was back then. Like that was just a real time of confusion for me. I have no good transition statement, but I do want to move on for people who have just been like, please, Gamergate. Uh, uh, we are going to talk about other topics, yes. but we needed to give it its due. Yes, we indeed. were talking about I tried to get us onto the illustrious short game. You did. <laughs> we did try to lift out of the mire. Let's talk about PewDiePie. Just kidding. Oh, God. <laughs> OK, let's uh. talk in a positive way, like. YouTube and streaming culture made a lot of let's play. Like there was a lot more like watching people play video games as an activity. Uh, a lot of silly, stupid games became really popular. Like uh, Nate's uh, fave, I am bread. And what's the one where you like have no legs and you have like a, a hammer. Oh, um, getting over it with Ben Fadi. Yep. That one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole that one's a little genre. later, I think. That, right? Yeah. That uh, was a lot o- more recent. Octodad was like a very later, start of yeah. the decade right there. Yeah, and things mm-hmm. like, I think early one would be like uh, Goat Simulator and other things like that. As, oh, yeah. as well as things like, especially Five Nights at Freddy's, uh, which is a bit of a different kind of thing. But like, I think that was a, another big thing we saw rise in the middle of the decade was like games that maybe aren't designed to find an audience based on a polished trailer, a good pitch and a nice page on Steam, but instead are designed to attract an audience via being whatever the like YouTube version of telegenic is, right? Like they're, they're games that like work well on streams, games that are basically there to be hype men for a streamer, right? Or, or like to set up situations where a, where streamers on, you know, on Twitch and YouTube can shine and by, by reflection, shine light on the game. That was, I mean, that's still going on. Uh, Pikuniku, which we covered last year, I have recently learned that they got, the vast majority of their referral audience from people playing it on streams because it's adorable and funny looking. Yeah, absolutely. And that that makes total sense. It's a very cute game. But like there's there's some games like Five Nights at Freddy's is the one that baffled me the most at first because it's a game that, you know, it's very basic. It's it's I think it's built in Game Maker or some other pretty or like Click Team Fusion, one of these fairly basic game make and not not to not to denigrate anybody using those those tools, which can be used yeah, for really amazing ugly, things. It's weird but, and it's kind of funny. And but but if you watch but it's full of jump scares, if you watch somebody on YouTube doing a let's play of it, you know, and they make, you know, funny voices. I guess it, I guess it's entertainment. Yeah, I watching somebody it, freak out on on YouTube is <laughs> potentially old. a good time. Yeah, so and and that built from what was essentially like a really really uh, cheap looking uh, indie game made by a single dude and released on Steam. I believe on Steam. I'm not even sure about that. Um, to being you know something where you can go and buy sweatpants in Walmart that have the characters on them today, like. Today, like like years later, there's there's like if you look at if you look up the the Five Nights at Freddy's um, Wikipedia page, which I do every week out of sheer confusion, uh, there are so many games listed on that page that I have no idea what they are. There's like five or six mainline games and like four or five spinoffs. And we're talking about within like that's there's been like more than one Five Nights at Freddy's game per year since they became a thing. 
I have no way to transition away from Five Nights at Freddy's either, but I desperately want to. <laughs> Consider us transitioned. So what would you like to talk about, Shane? Um, I would like to talk about some of the like incredible games that came out around the like mid middle of the decade. So like starting in 2015, uh, I just want to hit I just want to hit a few off my calendar here. Uh, mm-hmm. 2015, Undertale, Her Story, 2016, Pokemon Go, Firewatch, 2017, Breath of the Wild on the Nintendo Switch. We're talking about <laughs> not an indie game, <laughs> not an indie game, still a landmark. Uh, very true. I don't care. I really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, there's so many. There's so many like new ideas. The the big explosion of like YouTube culture and stream culture. Uh, I mean, it's sort of an innovation, right? It's sort of a, it's partly cultural, but it's also partly just like a game uh, marketing and also just tech innovation. And there's other like weird things that seem like these big ideas that came up in the 2010s. It's harder to put dates on these, but like a big one would be um, episodic games. I'm going to try and put a link in the show notes. I read a really good article at Waypoint this week that was about sort of the rise and fall of episodic games, which is a very 2010s thing um you know early in the decade we started seeing along with the indie game explosion we started seeing incredibly popular stuff in a sort of an episodic format so like maybe a little earlier maybe before the beginning of the decade you saw uh people like uh like valve trying this with the uh the episodes of half-life 2 um they didn't quite hit the mark but like we started seeing actual successes in terms of episodic games things like the walking dead uh, and other telltale stuff. And that that model seemed super, super promising at the beginning of the 2010s. And now we've seen a lot of really high profile, um, both critical and sort of market failures in terms of episodic games. Things like uh, like the, uh, the new Hitman, or not new Hitman, but like Hitman, the one before the most recent Hitman was done in an episodic format. Uh, critical success, but they switched away from that episodic format for the sequel because apparently it didn't do particularly well or didn't hit quite hit what they were expecting financially. And uh, there's been a lot of other games that would have been, you know, planned for this episodic format, especially things sort of emulating the Telltale style, where that's been kind of falling flat. You can look at things like uh, Life is Strange, the first one did pretty well, but Life is Strange, the second season, uh, which has just recently concluded, um, I don't think we have like actual numbers, but from what I understand, it's been a bit of a financial failure, uh, even though it's been a critical success. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that, but uh, I think there's a there's a strong indication that like episodic games were something that was like hot at the beginning of the 2010s and feels almost dead now. It seems like that's not something people are going to be doing going into the next de- decade. As we eventually cover Kentucky Route Zero, which has covered the entire decade. Um, Yeah, I I think there's been like a lot of different people trying. I mean, trend of the decade, Kentucky Route Zero gets released. Um, But (laughs) I I think that episodic game ideas seem like a really good idea because you could get ongoing payment. People didn't expect it all at once, but it also kind of uh, lines up with the rise of uh, people getting forever games. You get early access. You get uh, updates for free all the time. So, like having you know new chapters that were just an hour or two 
even if it was a reduced cost, like people tended to wait for the whole season to get out or they waited for a price drop. Like people kind of just didn't want that episodic. They didn't want to keep, you know, waiting on the next story drip because like I don't read a novel a chapter a time over the course of a year. So it's really hard to play episodic games that way. The concept of like games that you kind of release out on a continuous or a drip feed basis is kind of this other innovation that we also talked about that was super successful, which, you know, I've got to give a shout out uh, to my home away from home destiny Uh, (laughs) games as a service are, you know, I'll be home someday. Destiny. Trust me. I will. When I can find the time I had a kid, but (laughs) man, like (laughs) the, the, the the idea of like games as a service and the idea of episodic games is in a lot of ways really similar. It's like, OK, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to continue to get money from you, the games customer over time. Uh, but it it works only for, you know, so few have actually made it work. You know, like Destiny's one, not that many others that have made it work in that model. Yeah, I mean, you look at something like um, Anthem trying explicitly to emulate that model and it was it was right. a really fascinating colossal failure. Go read that piece. Uh, I can't remember the title off the top of my head now, but if you if you google like, you know, why did Anthem fail? I'm sure there that incredibly good uh uh piece on the sort of inside the development hell of Anthem uh will pop up and it is it is really something else. And I'm, that also kind of links back to the other big. So a lot of these innovations, now that I'm kind of we're getting into it, I'm realizing are just all the same thing. Yeah, they're all just developers trying to figure out new ways to get people to pay for their for their games, you know, uh, and that gets back to the more problematic ones too, like uh, the you know free to play games that have a really exploitative model where, you know, the. The, the puppy is going to frown at my two-year-old and he's going to ask me to put a dollar in so that the puppy smiles, you know, um, on the app store. So, no, sorry, nothing happened. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't a Paw Patrol <laughs> game on my phone. Oh, boy. Uh, the Nintendo Switch came out. <laughs> yes, and the Nintendo Switch, the savior of the mobile indie market. Yeah. Um, so I won't get on too much into this, but, like, you know, the rise of... Uh, in-app purchases and free-to-play kind of drowning out premium games on the App Store meant there were a lot of people who made money for a time exclusively on iOS and then couldn't make any more money. And guess who has saved them? The Switch. Some of them. Some of them did not. Sure, Some sure. of them went to go yeah, work you know, at AAA I, we, places. We've talked, before, but, like, we've talked yeah. before about the idea of like a, the indie apocalypse, right? And that's an idea, that's a word that's gotten thrown around multiple times throughout the decade, right? So like, you know, if you were to chart a uh, chart a path of indie games through the 2010s, um, you'd probably say that it starts with a sort of indie game boom uh, of the early decade, uh, and uh, then you'd probably have a, a point somewhere on that line. And where is debatable? Maybe it's a whole bunch of points, and you'd probably write in next to it indie apocalypse. It's just one of those words that got thrown around a lot. When I think the came up a lot when we were discussing this topic on uh, on the Discord, right? So again, shout out to the short game Discord. Indeed. The best place to talk about games on the internet. Yes. And it's sort of we've been talking before getting on the 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 show about what the indie apocalypse is, right? Because I, I think different people mean different things when they're talking about that. But essentially what 
what everyone had their own indie apocalypse. Every developer had their own indie apocalypse when they realized that maybe the business plan that they they formulated probably somewhere earlier in the decade wasn't going to function anymore in the environment that had developed by the mid or end of the decade, um, which was basically that like uh, that a lot of very competent, very good developers saw that there was a potential to not just make money in a, in a mercenary sense, but like a, a, a real possibility to create the game that they've always wanted to put out into the world uh, and potentially not go utterly broke while doing it. And everyone rushed to do that. And f- many of them found by the middle or end of the decade that the market that they had hoped to sell through into was no longer there um, because things were changing really fast. And uh, a big part of that was just the fact that, you know, when these marketplaces opened up so wide, they meant that there became, you know, it, it was it was much harder to be visible. Um, and things like marketing became much more important and expensive for mm-hmm. even the small indie games. Uh, you know, somebody like, uh, you know, when, uh, uh, when, Braid came out. I don't think he spent a lot of money on marketing. What he did was release the game on Steam. Some people played it. Enough people liked it. He talked to Microsoft, who was hungry to put a game on their console, managed to do that. I don't know for sure that he didn't spend money on marketing, but I don't think he spent a lot. Um, But today, if you were to make a game like it and wanted to put it out there, it would be competing against dozens or hundreds of games that are also vying for that same attention uh, and, uh, you know, that that people would be able to access in very similar ways. Uh, and it, there's it, it's just a really, really different marketplace than it was. Um, the, the Switch, like you mentioned, Laura, changed that conversation a bit, but mostly just because it had, like, I don't think there's anything necessarily about the Switch that makes it, that, that fixes the problem other than that it is a no, new No, no, no. The only difference is that people will pay 15 bucks, 10 bucks, 5 bucks for a game on the Switch and they won't pay a lot of people won't pay anything on a phone. Right. So the, I'm not saying that like it's not a savior. It's a small it's just a release new marketplace. Valve. It's a it's a But it's a small release valve. So we were talking earlier when we got onto the topic of the indie apocalypse and we we wound up kind of comparing the indie apocalypse to the video game crash of 1983 that everybody has heard about now, right? And, uh, you know, so in 1983, a bunch of places like Atari had all everyone had made a console and there was a bunch of games sitting on the shelves and a lot of them were bad. And so consumers thought, well, maybe video games aren't that big of a deal. Maybe they're not. Maybe it was a fad. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, Atari is burying, you know, hundreds of copies of E.T. in a landfill in the desert. Uh, and everything stays dead for a few years, two, three years until until somebody until Nintendo comes around. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe this indie apocalypse, there's some parallels there. You know, we had we had the switch come around and, and figure out how to get people to pay a few, uh, you know, pay a few real earth dollars uh, for their entertainment. Um, but if that's the case, I, I do kind of wonder what is the Atari E.T. of mobile games like when we did have this quote unquote indie apocalypse, what is what what was really um you know what got buried in the desert? That what got buried was people, right? Like companies. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of small a lot of companies, companies got buried, got in the buried out in the desert. Um and a lot of people yeah. who 
would have maybe spent who would have liked to make careers out of making games either didn't get to or uh or you know went on to careers that were quite different than what maybe they would have been uh trying for like i guess i don't want to sound overly dramatic but it wasn't like a bunch of atari cartridges that got buried in the desert this time uh it was a bunch of people's hopes and dreams yep i think that's fair yeah i mean so i i've i've been trying to kind of wrap my head around i wasn't really involved that much in like understanding the business of games during this period you know this was i was still kind of getting aware of it but like so i kind of get that we had this app store with the race to the bottom prices i remember that like i even myself thought like why would i pay more than a dollar for a game or an app on my phone you know and then there's this proliferation of free and free to play games and you know i remember how cluttered the app store storefront got and and thinking you know maybe maybe the games are drying up on the app store and and just thinking you know I wasn't quite as clued into stuff like touch arcade as you were at the time ring. I was, I was, I think I played uh, field runners on my phone constantly all the way into like 2012, you know? So, but I do remember like people being really cons- cause I was starting to get onto PC when people were really starting to be concerned about like steam green light. And that was really controversial, you know? Uh, oh and yeah. I, and, yeah. And the number of, the number of games that were being released on PC was just exploding from like around 2012 to around 2015. And so like Steam Greenlight starts releasing, you know, people really started to become concerned, like looking at the app store on mobile and saying, well, what if all of the store, what if Steam becomes like this, right? What if there is no way to dig through all the clutter and find things that are actually worth playing? And in a lot of cases, like it kind of did become hard. And then we we started looking around. I remember, what was it, around 20... It was actually right at 20, 2010 when I guess it got founded, but uh, it was later when I kind of got onto it, which is the idea of the Humble Bundle. Do you remember Humble yeah. Bundle mm-hmm. becoming a thing? When did oh, that yeah. really hit for you? I, I remember uh, being very excited about Humble Bundles uh, around... This would have been probably 2011, 2012, um, because and, uh, Humble Bundles were really what motivated me to get to build a gaming PC back at that time, because I realized like, you know, well, part of it was just like these bundles would come up and maybe there'd be one game that I could actually play on my existing setup. uh, But there'd be four others in the bundle that I thought, well, maybe I could play that if I ever upgrade my PC or if I, you know, do whatever else I needed to do. And um, that was a really big motivating factor for me at the time because it was it's so cheap. You'd be a, you'd be an idiot not to not to do it at the time. It felt like well, they they managed to like find this interesting um, space kind of in between that kind of race to the bottom pricing, uh, which is like okay, all apps, all code is one dollar. In uh, oftentimes, like you're actually even paying less or nothing. Like it, they had like pay what you want mm-hmm. uh, kinds of sales, right? Um, right? pay a little bit more to get the one game you might have heard of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then and then you you wind up. Uh, so so they, they they created this this space of like, you know, somehow yet yet again managing to carve out a little marketplace in this like morass of uh, junk 
like shovelware. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to cast aspersions on the probably very good people with good intentions at Humble Bundle because, like, part of the whole thing of Humble Bum- Bundle was that it was essentially charity. Yeah, it's a charity. It's a way of uh, raising money for charity uh, by getting developers essentially to donate their games, which. You know, maybe they wouldn't have been. Hopefully, they get a bunch of uh, of uh, you know of uh, basically free marketing out of it. Hopefully, um, by donating their games or you know at a very low cost to them uh, to these bundles. But the the problem is that it it creates this marketplace for these games where it 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 devalues the games. You know, the the idea is like, oh well, you know, this game isn't worth five dollars because at one point it was in a humble bundle for five cents right and uh and maybe there's even still bunches of keys floating around for it or something like that um and it kind of cloaks this i think kind of uh problematic effect that it has on the market in its charity right like it's it's unimpeachable because it's a charity so no one was really thinking about like what is this doing to the market of video games now, it, it definitely had a positive effect too. Like me, like I mentioned, it got me into the Steam marketplace in a way that I hadn't been before. It got me into PC gaming in a way that I hadn't been before um, and excited about it because like suddenly with almost no outlay of money, I had this massive library of games that was just waiting for me to play once I had a place to play them. Um, and I think that that's probably a story that that a lot of people kind of yeah. lived during mm-hmm. that time. And it was kind of around here, like 2012 to 2015-ish, where people saw like the number of games that were coming out like ballooning and like these uh, the overall like price people paid for a, for a game when they bought it, like n- taking a nosedive. Um, and they also simultaneously were seeing stuff like these big name indie games coming out, like the stuff that got a lot of publicity. Um, and those were starting to have like real marketing budgets behind them. And there was this idea for a while of like a triple I game being like an indie game that like actually had business sense and like corporate marketing savvy and all that stuff behind it. And like the, the indie market is going to just become another triple uh, a market. Uh, but then again, now they're competing with triple a games. So what's, you know, maybe it'll just all go away. That was like the mindset around this kind of idea of the indie apocalypse. And um, what to me, like it, it a trend like that, you know, you know, sure, if these trends continue, but a trend like that won't really can't really continue forever, right? Yeah, none of the like if you follow these trends, they always either go up eventually into the stratosphere or down to the down to the earth. And like that's never been the story. Like if the trend of the uh, the 1983 video game crash had continued, we would all be playing with sticks and rocks right now. Yeah. And and your your average game consumer, you know, sure, they'll play a game that's like a penny, but are they gonna play you know, 10 games for 10 pennies. I don't know. Game consumers leisure time uh, inexplicably remains flat. <laughs> I mean, it used to be like, hey, is everyone is going to play free flash games on their computer instead of buying things? Like there's always yes, going to yes, be in the, a in the force of, uh, face of booming workforce productivity. And even in the flood of nearly identical platformers for a penny, you know, gamers were finding what the good stuff was. And... Uh, so ultimately, it kind of turned out to not be a. I mean, it was a real problem uh, because there were a lot of people that you know the market did change and and people kind of had to change their careers and uh, and and expectations in a lot of ways. But 
Yeah, I don't I don't want to like uh, I don't want to contradict the lived experience of anyone who suffered uh, personal or financial hardship during the indie apocalypse, right? Like if it affected you, it affected you. But like for the news, indie life goes on, right? Life goes life went on, particularly for the game player, uh, if not maybe for all of the uh, the people in the industry, like the, the disruption was, I would say, much less felt than the 83 uh Uh, Well, I wasn't around for that one, so I can't say exactly what it felt like to be a game player in 1983. But I got to imagine that like from the game player perspective, this dip was felt less than the 83 one for sure, because it, it, you know, good stuff continued to come out at pace during this whole period. So it's funny that even as the the business story was all this uh, you know we're hearing indie apocalypse we're hearing about all this the struggle in the industry all the the problems of uh churn and um people just you know overworking themselves and all like the horrible conditions of the gaming industry on the player side you're just seeing so many games like people talk about peak tv there's too much good tv to watch like there is yearly you know, we used to have to struggle to find short games to fill the schedule. Not anymore. Like, it seems like there's just... Yeah, that hasn't been a problem in a few years. That hasn't years. been a problem for years. There's just so many games coming out on so many levels um, from so many different channels. Like, if we wanted to have a super indie, tiny, uh, $1 to $5 an itch podcast, we could be doing that. Like, hey, and if just... anybody has that podcast, hit me up. I want to listen to it. Oh, yeah. And there, there's just like this crazy democratization, like the tools to play games have never been cheaper. No. The tools to make games have never been cheaper. But also play games. That's, that's a totally And play valid. games, like, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, a, a Nintendo Switch is uh, $200-ish. Like, I, I, if you take inflation into account, every console today is such a value. And that's not even thinking about phones, which most people just sort of, you know, not to discount the fact that phones are expensive. They are, but people just have them, right? So, like, there, there's... It, and if you don't have money for a console of your own, you can watch them for free. That's true. Yeah, you can go on YouTube and watch somebody play And you play can be just as knowledgeable game. about Overwatch not playing a single minute. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a while, it's been a wild decade. I, I don't know. Is there any other like true big, uh, uh, big shifts or big trends that we want to talk about a- across the, the period of the 2010s? Uh, We've talked a little bit about it, but I want to just give a shout out to the explosion of games coverage. Mm. Uh, games aren't necessarily, we're getting like little footholds into mainstream media, but and like they're covering esports and stuff, which is important. But um, it is easier than ever if you haven't heard of a game to find someone talking about it. That's really Whether or not true. that's a credible source. You can still find someone to talk about it. Yeah, I think the biggest change in for, for, for me is like so things like blogs existed back in the 2010s. Like I mentioned that like I got a lot of my gaming news at the time not from gaming sites but from sort of more uh, broad blog like types of sites. Um, but I think something that really has changed is that the way that games are covered by like actual gaming media has made a big shift from things like. You know, if you look back then, we're talking about things like magazines still existed. Um, gaming websites were mostly these sort of like magazine-like publications. Maybe they were making like inches into video or what have you, but they were still in the sort of very editorial, uh, you know, voice or voice of the 
uh, of the business kind of vibe. And uh, the 2010s was sort of the the arc of of games coverage really shifted towards personality based coverage, uh, which I immensely prefer. I just sort of find it much easier to sort of get to know a person who is a games critic and uh, and you know thinker about games. Um, and sort of get to know them and their tastes and follow what they are interested in via a variety of different things. You know, I'll find somebody I think is smart and follow them on Twitter and listen to their podcast and watch them on YouTube and go to their website and read their blog and all of these things. Um, and that feels different from, you know, getting a, uh, like a, going to IGN or, or, getting a magazine in the mail, which was, I think, a still a pretty dominant way of learning about new games as of even as late as like 2010. So I've been doing a lot of interviews for work on how people look for new games, uh, given this kind of insane environment we talk about. And a lot of people are saying things like Steamless. I look at curators like they're they're talking about, like, I curate my games and share the games I like and I expect people to do the same. I, I follow people I trust. I talk to people I trust. I look at people talking about it on Twitter. It's not just like a goose game that kind of everyone starts talking about. They kind of start listening to a couple voices. And it's interesting that as, you know, discovery becomes a bigger and bigger problem as there's just more and more games out there. We're still kind of looking. I look at the 20 people I follow that I trust and people in Discord saying you should play this game, people emailing us. Like we're still kind of looking at personal recommendations because it's not as if there's one monolithic property out there. Yeah, it's just that personal No one's telling us what to do anymore. <laughs> it's just that personal recommendations have now extended to YouTubers, podcasters, bloggers, all these other sort of parasocial yeah, Personal doesn't mean you know the person anymore, but you think you do. Yeah. I, I, I think that's really interesting. And it is like a it's a big shift that happened some – like it, it happened without me noticing it. But looking back on the decade, it feels really obvious. Um, I don't really know how you like where where you draw those lines. I, you know, there's there's definitely like early pioneers in that that like I wasn't paying attention to, and it, it kind of just blindsided me that suddenly, oh wow, I guess this is what video games uh, journalism is like now, right? And I I think it's great. I I, I really yeah. prefer it. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing I just throw out as a trend, uh, we gotta say Kickstarter. Started oh, in 2009, and that's been a huge trend of the decade. Huge, so, like, huge. I don't have anything to say about that other than Kickstarter mm-hmm. existed and changed the way we fund games. But it's kind of something you gotta at least give lip service to. Yeah, as long as we're giving lip service to things, I'd like to pour one out for one of my favorite gaming trends that didn't make it. Oh please! Uh, and that was uh, 3D televisions. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Right around. Remember, right. Have in you ever actually played a video game on one, though? Like, I know that was a thing that Sony was pushing pretty hard. But by the time I had the hardware that would be required to do that, no one wanted to do it anymore. Yeah. No, I had one game that I got to play through in 3D. It was uh, that. God, I don't even remember the fucking name of it. It was it was but it was one of this flagship Sony PS would have been PS3. The PS4 does not. Yeah, do that. it was a PS3 uh, FPS uh, it was like aliens resistance one resistance. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I played through. Re- I'm pretty sure I played resistance in 3d. Hmm. Yeah. I never even did that. And that was one of those things that like Sony was pushing that hard. Sony even made a special cool. PlayStation three branded TV that was 3d. And like, it was, it was going to be the next big thing, right? You remember avatar was out and everyone was like super, well, yeah, you know, and excited like the, about three. Now you had the blu-rays avatar was it though. Like I, I didn't, 
I didn't own a copy of Avatar because they kept the the Blu-ray real expensive, and so that's the only 3D thing I ever did. Yeah, I didn't get a uh, I didn't get a I got 3D capable TV until I was already pretty sure that wasn't for me. So, um, mm-hmm. and I, I never even bought the glasses. Just has that yeah, extra well. tech in there that's never been turned on. Yeah, but also in 2010 there was another uh, tech that came out that was kind of before its time. And they've tried it again and again the whole decade, and they're still trying it. And people think it's the first time, like, this year. And that's, like, game streaming services. Mm. In 2010, they came out with OnLive. Remember that one? Uh, Yep. OnLive was going to have its own hardware to do game streaming. And then, like, um, around 2015, uh, Sony tried to do the same thing, and they made their, their own subscription game streaming service. And now Google is doing it here at the end of the end of the decade, and still nobody's managed to nail yeah, it. Yeah, I think nobody's nailed it because the the internet infrastructure in this country is is shit. But also, like the kinds of games that we uh, that I don't know the, the kinds of games that will work on it are pretty specific. Like the, you 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 sell that by saying like, oh, it's going to play the highest end stuff. You won't need to have this super high end gaming PC. We'll have something in the cloud that'll give you, you know, pictures that will look real pretty and better than what you can do on your box at home. But uh, at least with the current game design trends, the people that care most about the, you know, fancy graphics are also the people that care most about being able to frag noobs at 120 FPS or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe we can talk a little bit about projections for the, the, the coming decade, uh, as much as we can think of them. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm still very skeptical on game streaming after a decade of failures. I don't see why we're going to start having successes yet. I don't think the tech and landscape has changed enough. Maybe in 2030. Maybe. You want to talk about another, um, tech thing that happened in this decade, Shane, after your uh, your 3D TV, this was the decade when VR became a thing. Right. I thought that was the 80s. <laughs> I mean, you'd think, but like, I, I I was I'm very surprised. I was very surprised to see VR like become an actual commercial product that you could buy this decade. And I've been both pleasantly surprised and also kind of disappointed by where we're at with it. Right? Like, it's uh, like PSVR is fine it's fun to play but it's still very niche and, and weird and kind of kind of janky in many many ways um being you know getting into a vr setup is still very expensive if you're doing something other than psvr almost any of the other ones are, are pretty darn expensive and there's all there's all kinds of like compromises to those experiences um and it's it's the point where like here we are years after the introduction of vr and Valve is introducing a brand new Half-Life game. And my first thought was, oh, dang, it's in VR. I guess I won't play that. I will. <laughs> well, it's been a very interesting decade, and it's been an interesting chat thinking back on it. I know we, we you know, our, our conversation here focused a lot on, like, the broad strokes of things and not a lot on specific games or anything like that. So, you know, if, if listeners have uh, thoughts about what your game of the decade was, for example, or or games that you think made a enormous impact across the decade, you know, there's definitely uh, a chat to be had there. Maybe join us on the Discord and we can talk about it. Um, I'd also like to know if anybody has any uh, predictions for what the next decade holds uh, for indie games or video gaming generally. And I, uh, I don't know. It, it, uh, we're not great prognosticators. 
Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have a crystal ball or anything, uh, but I wondered if any of you guys had uh, had any thoughts for what's coming in the next decade. Well, I actually am a ninth level spellcaster uh, specializing in divination. So I will use my crystal ball and I will look forward into the next decade and I will say game streaming will be a thing by 2030. <laughs> feels like a safe bet. That's a very good Will thing. it be a successful thing by 2030? I mean, yes. it's a thing now. Someone that's will the, be making the... money on it. <laughs> uh, mine's going to be a much easier prediction. I predict there's going to be a lot more... Uh, Silly, memeable, all ages games in the because everyone's going to look at Goose Game and go, Why don't I have that? And before everyone was going, Why don't I have Five Nights at Freddy's? They're going to learn they don't have to be violent, they just have to be mischievous. More dirtbag animals in the next decade because everyone's going to want to copy Goose and, Game. And less dirtbag people, please. Less dirtbag people. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> more dirtbag animals, more fun mischief and less horrible mischief all right so we have been naming dirtbag of the year did we name dirtbag of the decade i mean the dirtbag of the year the last three years has been an animal and i see no reason why this trend will not continue it is the late 20 teens and onward trend is dirtbag animals and i would love it to just continue onward forever onward into the 2020s indeed i guess my one prediction and every time you make a if you try to make a serious prediction all anyone is ever really doing is like finding something they think is the future and trying to project it out, right? Um, and for me right now, the most futuristic thing I've seen in video games in a little while is AI Dungeon 2. It felt like magic when I played it. If you haven't seen it, uh, look it up. It's astonishing. And what I think is the my prediction for the next decade would be that, do you remember back... Um, around the introduction of the Kinect. So here again, we're looking back at the at the, the decade that was. There was that demo called like Milo. And uh, it was a sort of non-game thing. It never actually came out, but people were very excited about it around the, you know, the Xbox 360 era and the introduction of the Kinect. And it was essentially a kind of a game where you were play, you were able to play with a sort of a virtual child that had very realistic interactions with you. And it never did anything other than incredibly controlled demos, right? Uh, I think people had these massive, crazy ideas about what it was going to actually do. My prediction is basically that. I think that this is the decade where we are going to be able to speak to an NPC in a computer game and have them speak back to us in a conversation that resembles an actual human conversation without it necessarily being 100% pre-written. I'm not saying that they're going to be able to like, I'm not saying they're going to be alive or anything like that, but I think they're going to be able to imitate a, a reasonable approximation of a human conversation much better than they can today. So you're saying neural net in games, not Turing test in games. Right. Yes. I do not think we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, the rights for video game Americans yet, but we're going to be talking about uh, this game has a really great simulation of a person. Reagan, we've been talking about rights for video game Americans this entire decade. <laughs> you just haven't been paying attention. Yes, that's true. Well, uh, rise up, gamers. And 2020 is the year when we when we rise, rise up. up to do what <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to game. Come on. <laughs> uh, 
rise up to play Ring Fit Adventure. <laughs> yes, which Shane and I have been playing a lot of and probably will be doing either a Patreon oh, or a full episode. Stay tuned. I can't on wait that to talk one. about I'm that. E- I'm excited to hear you guys talk about it. Uh, and I'm, I need somebody to talk me into it because I'm now fat. Uh, so. Thank you guys You're not for joining fat. me on this. You're not fat. Oh, oh, you Listeners, I'm looking at this skinny Listeners. motherfucker, and he's not fat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for that encouragement. Reagan just wanted some compliments at the end of the at the end of the decade. Don't we all want some compliments? <sighs> Listeners, if Shane, you'd like to tell wonderful. Reagan he's Reagan, not fat. You can listeners find him on Twitter. Wonderful. Reagan, can, where can they find you? Uh, yes. You so, listeners, you can find our show on the web at uh, theshortgame.net or, of course, on Patreon at patreon.com slash theshortgame. And uh, once again, uh, all of our Patreon supporters get instant access to our Discord, which is where these conversations start. So we'd love to have you there. Um, and you can support us at a dollar a month or more. Um, and, of course, you can find our show on Twitter at underscore short game and you can find me on twitter at reagan k that's r-a-y-g-a-n-k laura where can people find you you can find me on twitter at laura j nash and shane where can people find you you can find me on twitter at 8bit shane and thank you for listening to the short game gamers rise up